evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second evening lecture of Thank you. Welcome to the second evening lecture of week one of Rare Book School, 1989. Um, I'd just like to make a few very brief uh, announcements to um, um, precede my introduction of Sue Allen. Uh, first of all, to make another pitch, the uh, RBS Notion Shop will be open selling these, uh, our new RBS mugs and uh, other RBS fetishes. <laughs> for 20 minutes after the lecture tonight uh, and that will be concurrent with the reception which follows the lecture uh, we will also be open the, the, the notion shop will also be open for an extended period uh, tomorrow during the farewell party at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon um, a few notes of interest to RBS students um, tomorrow I will be distributing receipts to you, um, which will close our uh, accounts, I hope. And uh, in the afternoon you will be um, asked to take or asked to fill out evaluations. This should take 10 minutes and will uh, come at the very end of class period, right before the, um, right before the uh, farewell party. Please, RBS students, check the RBS message board for messages that uh, may be left for you, um, especially Wes Wilson. Um, that is the message board outside of room 522. As you all know uh, from last, or ma as many of you know from last night's lecture, Terry Bellinger gave the 273rd Book Arts Press lecture, but maybe uh, you didn't know that Sue Allen is in a three-way tie for the third most frequent lecturer <laughs> at the Book Arts Press, a three-way tie with Ian Willison and Nicholas Barker. She is indeed a mainstay of the RBS uh, lecture series and has uh, lectured for, uh, given many summer lectures for Rare Book School. Sue Allen is an independent researcher based in New Haven, Connecticut, and she spent the last nearly 20 years on 19th century American publishers' bindings, in particular investigating and identifying stylistic characteristics of, of publishers' bindings. Her interest in end papers, um, the subject of tonight's talk, is a logical outgrowth of her research in publishers' bindings. And as uh, Rare Book School attendees of the past know, Sue Allen's lectures are always a feast for the eyes as well as the mind. Sue Allen. Thank you, Martin.
Right. Viewed as a part of the book's structure, the end paper in a cased book is a folded sheet of paper tipped along the outer edges of the text block and when pasted down to the cover board, securing the text into the cover. On the left is the folded end sheet tipped to the text and ready to be pasted to the board. On the right, the end paper has been pasted down, the board, the tapes, and the mull, or crash, are covered up, and the book is shown as you, the reader, see it. Viewed as the publisher or the book designer might see it, the end paper offers a blank space, double the size of the text page. It could either be left blank, or it could be decorated in some manner. The book will function either way. A printed end paper is somewhat of a fad of fashion that comes in at certain periods and goes out. I want to show you some of the most interesting of the printed end papers, which are, until the book is opened, hidden from view. My emphasis is on the role of the printed end paper. When it does appear, why was the printed end paper put there? What purpose does it serve? I made this chart to show you what we will be looking at. The chart shows the occurrence of stock printed end papers in 19th century books. Stock end papers are those that a paper merchant could keep in stock and that anybody could buy, any publisher or binder could put into their books. Above the date line are America and England. Below the date line is Europe. From about 1840 to 1855, there emerged a small number of simple patterns, mainly used in gift books. From about 1855 to 1880 is pretty much of a blank period when binders used the dark stone or surface-colored papers. A little before 1880, a burst of flowered end papers in many patterns and used in great amounts in books of all kinds lasted to about 1895. I don't show it on the chart, but paralleling these flowered end papers and extending into the turn of the century was the commissioning by publishers of individualized end papers for specific books. This was extensive, and the papers are of great interest. Then shown at the bottom of the chart in Europe was an active period from the 1890s to 1910 and beyond in stock end papers of Art Nouveau style. We'll return to this chart at the end of the talk. On the left is the kind of book in which you might find the earliest printed end papers, a cover extremely simple and sturdy in appearance compared to later Victorian book covers. And this is the earliest printed end paper I've found in 19th century books on an 1832 London published memoirs of a clergyman. It was printed by lithography in a single color of brown ink on a cream color paper. In books of two years later, 1834, I've seen the same pattern in indigo blue and in corn yellow. 
so it was apparently issued in at least three colors. The pattern to print from was made by what was called engine turning, mechanically produced eccentric curves used in England and the United States from 1820 to 1840 for the backgrounds of banknotes and checks as a way of preventing forgery. On this end paper, the curves seem to represent a wood graining or perhaps watered silk. The initial wood-grained papers were followed in a few years by other little grainings, imitative of wood or marbling, and these first ones set a keynote of style for this whole class of early papers, modest, unpretentious, generalized, small-scaled. There were also meander patterns, as on the left, and on the right, a lace-like design made up of little lines all going in one direction, printed in clear indigo blue. On the left is a ruling machine, a fascinating 19th century invention for supplying the ruled forms and account books required in large quantities by business firms. It began in the early 1800s as a construction of piano wires inked by sponges and paper pressed down against the wires. By the 1840s and 50s, it had reached its mature form, an arrangement of fixed brass ruling pens with reservoirs from which colored inks were drawn across sheets of paper. The binder William O. Hickok of Harrisburg patented a number of mechanical improvements to the ruling machine and sold machines to binders who often set up with paper ruling as a sideline. On the right is a sample of ruled work from Luther Ring. Ringwald's American Encyclopedia of Printing, Philadelphia, 1871, an excellent reference work illustrated with black and white woodcuts and a few lithographs. This specimen was tipped into the text and is not printed like the rest of the book, but is an actual example of machine ruling by John Jones, binder and paper ruler of Philadelphia. Eleven different ink colors were used on the entire page, of which we see the top half, and several different weights of line. In these plaid end papers of the 1840s, we can see the same linear arrangement with differently weighted lines as in the account book ruling. And I am convinced that the ruling machine, closely connected as it was with binders, was responsible for the style and makeup of these patterns. Just as the computer influences graphic design today, such a machine must have influenced theirs. The actual printing of the plaids was done by lithography, usually using a single plate of lines, laying the paper in the opposite direction and printing with another color to gain the plaid. These papers are beautiful and quite rare. I would much welcome hearing from anyone who finds such a paper. 
Lithography was the second most popular way of printing these 1840s and 50s papers. The majority were printed by letterpress. On the far left, I think you can see the letterpress impression on the back of a sheet. On the right are the kind of type metal florons or ornaments that were put together to print such an end paper as the blue and white design. The type ornaments used were small and set out in the regularity of a geometric pattern. The most commonly seen single design of this period is this kind of little star geometric. Blue and white small patterns were favored. And on the right, I've laid pieces from an old family quilt of mine alongside a very similar end paper. Other popular colors besides blue were brown, green, pink, red, and gold. The colors of these 1840s papers are clear, not the grayed and muted shades we'll find in the 1880s. Um, now it needs to go backward. Oh, oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's it. I want to call attention in this pattern on the right to the way the binder used up the end of a sheet in a somewhat naive way he wouldn't in later times. One can also find evidence of hand trimming the sheets in this period of simple patterns and country charm. Even the ones put into the most elaborate gold-stamped gift books are still relatively simple and open. It's inside such a gift book cover as the one on the left that you would find those last papers. In a general way, the books, the furnishings of the 1840s are harmonious, discreet, restrained, free of fuss and pomposity. This book has gilded edges to the pages. Printed end papers give it an extra touch of refinement, make an already desirable object even more cherishable. The papers accord with the feeling of the covers. Coinciding with the 1840s and 50s papers were a few end papers that were burnished and highly glossed to a surface similar to that of glazed chintz. The gloss was the result of burnishing produced by means of a piece of polished flint or agate passing rapidly to and fro over the surface. The operator drew the sheet toward her, passing it between the flint and a small hard wooden platform. The sheet had been previously colored on one side these colors are light and cheerful, yellow, orange, robin's egg blue. 
and they add the same sprightly little touch of elegance as the early printed papers. Very different are the stone or surface papers, as they were called, that dominate the 1855 to 1880 period. Their colors are generally sober. There is no gloss or shine to them. The finish is characteristically matte and chalky. A clay-mixed, dull-finish ink coats one side of the paper. Something about these surface papers appealed deeply to the spirit of the times. The use of these papers was enormous. No end paper is more characteristic of the 19th century book. In the 70s, book cloths became quite standardized. Cloth of a high quality and hard finish was used. The stamped designs had a mechanical formality. The book was taking on a severe professional perfection in contrast to the 1840s and 50s book. This was city clothes versus country charm. The surface papers of sober colors and good quality provided a link, pulled the cover together with the rest of the book. They were expensive to make, produced in the quantities that they were, they must have consumed gallons of pigment. In 1880, an English paper merchant advertised that since, as a rule, the cost of surface-coated papers was high, he was offering as an acceptable alternative printed, patterned end papers. And many publishers turned to the newly offered printed patterns. They were supplied in a literal flood of mostly floral designs by English and American manufacturers and became enormously popular in the period between 1880 and 1895. They fed into a new mood of growing affluence and leisure reading. In contrast to the 1840s end papers, where symmetrical patterns were made up of small units and clearly visible repeats, there is seldom a really definable repeat pattern or framework to these 1880s end papers. If there was ever a trellis or framework underneath these flowers, it's been overgrown. What we see is a tangle of leaves and blossoms. The style is dense, filled in, entangling. Favorite colors were the muted rusts, browns, oranges, yellow greens, and blue greens of the aesthetic vocabulary the colors Kate Greenaway used in her illustrations. They were printed almost entirely by lithography on sheet-fed presses from stone or metal plates. In readying the large stone for printing, one unit of the design was first prepared on a small stone, and then by means of transfer paper, it was duplicated upon the large stone as many times as may be desired. 
Nearly always the joins of the units can be seen, often as here in the form of little white lines, and this becomes a characteristic of these 80s pattern papers. In the 80s, the cover was developing as a selling tool, much like our book jackets today. It was the main focus of effort, and no other part of the book mattered so much. Here is a cover of the late 80s with its own end paper. The cover promises sailing voyages and Indian massacres. What have these gentle birds and flowers to do with it? It points up the way of going at book manufacture in the late 80s. Someone thought it looked nice and said, let's put it in. The notion of the book as a harmoniously planned whole was yet in the future. The surface-coated papers were occasionally used as a background to print the patterns on, such as this twining pomegranate shown also printed on white. This may have been a way of using up an oversupply of the surface papers. In any case, it was a quick way to produce a two-color effect. A fine orange fern on the right and on the left, another pattern that was overprinted onto a gray surface-coated paper. And you will be noticing that there was a variety within the patterns. They were not all dense foliage. The total number of patterns in this late period is very great compared to the simple early patterns of the 1840s and 50s. I would estimate that of the early, there are at the most 40 or 50 different designs but close to 300 of the late patterns. A sub-style adopted by individual publishers incorporating their initials. The American publisher Appleton on the left with his A surrounded by apple branches, and on the right, the English Louis Day and his publisher Batsford Brothers. The same design would be produced in a range of colors. One advertiser offered each design in six tints. Another manufacturer offered to print them in any color your book was covered in. This popular pattern, I notice Terry has managed to garner this brown design among his gifts shows an Eastlake trend with some Japanese influence in the flattening of the leaves and flower heads. Another Eastlake style on the left in two colors. At the top left, a glimpse of a library computer charge-out label. Between security stickers and earlier stamping slips and book plates, printed end papers in library books are being swallowed up in labeling. On the other hand, the label on the right is very acceptable indeed to be cherished. It's a binder's label or ticket, a piece of valuable book history identifying Crawford and Stockbridge, a Concord, New Hampshire trade binder, 
who in 1887 bought this fern pattern end paper and put it in the book. The multiple outside influences from other cultures characteristic of late Victorian styles are evident in the stock end papers. This extremely vivacious pattern incorporating Egyptian motifs is an example. It's an outstanding end paper, and I've only seen it once. It was a thrill to come upon it. It was printed in eight colors. I found it in a book called Selections from Aesop's Fables, published in London by the Pictorial Literature Society, undated, but it is the late 80s. The strongest of the outside influences were the Japanese and Oriental. Here are Japanese fans. The orange, uh, English, 1886. The light brown, American, 1885. An extremely popular design was the Oriental Summer House. It clearly fitted into the new leisure that Americans were seeking in the late 80s and early 90s, one in indigo blue and one in dark green. And another pair, people reading, relaxing, and boating. The one on the left is suited to the subject matter of its book, An American Writer's Popular History of China, Japan, and Korea, published in 1894. But the one on the right reaches a height of unsuitability between pattern and subject matter. The book was published in 1888 and was called from Tannery to the White House, <laughs> the biography of Ulysses S. Grant. <laughs> again and again, we find the stock end paper not suited to the book. It's very common in this period. I end this group of stock end papers with a lightning or a cracked earth pattern that probably had a Japanese origin. It was made by scraping out whites on a ruled background and adding the heavy jagged lines. It was easy to assemble for printing. The random nature of the lines masked the joining of the repeats. Perhaps it was this and the non-committal nature of the pattern that made it so popular. You see it very frequently, and it was issued in a number of colors. The 80s patterns are by far the greatest number of printed end papers in American cloth-bound books. Their role is one of non-fit, of incompatibility. Often we don't know what to make of them. They're part of the haphazard scramble in post-Civil War prosperity to produce consumer goods. These end papers are a pouring out of patterns to meet a very unfocused market. Now I want to turn to end papers designed for specific books that were used only in the books they were made for. 
they roughly parallel in time the stock end papers of the 80s and 90s and they go on in strength through the turn of the century and into the 1910s and 20s. A great many were designed for children's books, but not all. In these books, we'll see a moving toward the situation at the turn of the 19th century when the end paper will ultimately support the book's cover. Dante Gabriel Rossetti's work in book design was ahead of its time. As early as 1861, he made an advanced cover design for his sister Christina's poems, composed of straight lines and tiny open circles. In 1865, he made the cover on the far left for Swinburne's poems. In 1870, he designed the cover next to it for his own poems. He and artists like Walter Crane gained an artistic appreciation of the principles of Japanese design earlier than most designers did. Now, in 1870, for the first time in his book work, he devised an end paper to more or less match the outside design on his own poems in one printing of indigo on pale blue paper. On a background of little curled scrolls, where shall he place the little flower sprigs? Where drop a leaf? Not quite symmetrical, not quite haphazard. Some breaking out of the margin. It has the touch of the true artist. It's very early indeed for a specifically designed end paper, and being 1870 falls into the period when it was the unusual book that carried any sort of printed end paper. Now we come into a more characteristically Victorian mood. The bright red cover is Five Little Mice in a Mousetrap, an American children's book by Laura E. Richards, published in 1880 by Estes and Laureate of Boston, then the largest children's book publishers in America. Inside the book is a delightful Kate Greenaway end paper. Whether Kate Greenaway did the actual end papers herself, I don't know. She was extensively imitated in her own day. She is credited on the title page as being one of the illustrators of the book, which is a typical 1880s compilation of woodcuts in varied styles. In any case, the end papers are in her mode, little groups of children surrounded by garlands. It was lithographed in three colors, two grays and a blue. You can see in these appealing little scenes what made her work so popular. On the left, an enlarged detail from the Kate Greenaway. On the right, an end paper constructed along similar lines. Vignettes enclosed by little leafy sprays, all printed in one color, brown ink on tan paper. Now what can we see in this quintessentially Victorian end paper? Two rats examining a trap, a raven dressed for a game of cricket, small scenes of children, a girl with an umbrella watering her plants, a boy with a slate, a large rat jumping a frog, all drawn with a naivete of scale that is typical of cheap Victorian bookmaking. More details from this end paper. The front and back end papers differ from each other, and also the two halves of each end paper are different. 
so there are many little pictures to study. As well as the unsophistication of scale, there's some awkwardness of draftsmanship, but the total effect is extremely winning. These pictures do not come from the inside of the book, which contains assorted woodcuts. The name of the book is The Home Picture Book for Little Children, Philadelphia, no date, but it looks like the early 1880s. Paper on a book called The Tiddlywinks Poetry Book by John Kendrick Bangs, published in New York in 1892. The riotous details on this end paper are in line with the idea of the book, a set of nonsense rhymes, but they are not derived from the book's illustrations, which are in quite a different style. They were made in one printing of black ink on a yellow-coated paper, and we see the same evidence of the joining of the repeat and the lined background holding all the little elements together that characterized the stock end papers of the 1880s. On a book called A Guernsey Lily by the popular girl's author Susan Coolidge, Boston, 1881, this is a very unusual piece that combines three aspects of end papers of this period. It's foremost an advertisement end paper. In a very charming way, the publisher, Roberts Brothers, puts forward other books by the same author. Then it has a map. There is a map of Guernsey on the back end paper, and here on the front end paper is a map of the island of Jersey. Maps are common in Victorian books aimed at high school age. Then the background is an all-over pattern of flowers similar to ones we've seen and into which the names of towns on the edge of the island run illegibly. So that this is a very rich, very Victorian end paper. It was printed in four colors and has a small name on it, Forbes Company Boston, who were lithograph printers. Now we've been looking at 19th century American children's books with qualities that we think of as Victorian, pretty or crudely humorous, crammed with pictures, every space filled in. Suddenly into this crowded scene burst the Bodley books published in the late 1870s and early 80s by Houghton Mifflin in Boston. They raised a storm of favorable comment. They were just totally different. The Bodleys were a family of travelers who told stories as they went and lent themselves to a popular series publication. Estes and Laureate had a similar zigzag journey series and there were rival series by other publishers. The books of all the publishers looked very much alike as to inside layout and woodcuts used over and over. It was the covers that gave the Bodleys the edge. Hardly a review fails to mention them and the end papers as well. We read such comments as beautiful lithographed covers and linings in odd designs or the binding presents a new idea and the inner cover and fly leaves are admirably made. On the left, the Japanesque brilliance, flatness, openness, and diagonal layout that created such a sensation for Houghton Mifflin's Bodley books. And on the right, an end paper from the Zigzag Journeys in Classic Lands, 1879. 
It's interesting enough with a map combined with sketches, but it seems old-fashioned beside the Bodley end paper. To my knowledge, this is a unique advertisement on the left. It's in the 1898 trade list annual for Henry T. Coates, publisher, Philadelphia. It describes the roundabout library for young people, 60 steady-selling titles by well-known authors. With a view to increasing their sale, the publisher tells us, they are offered in a new, attractive form. He describes the careful printing, the substantial binding, with beautiful side and back stamps, and new lithographed pictorial lining papers from original drawings made for the purpose. All this for one dollar each. I was delighted to locate the actual end paper, which is indeed exceptional. The front and back end papers were different. This is the front end paper, boys walking across the field to go fishing. In the detail, you can see that although it's as late as 1898, they were printed in true chromolithography with its characteristic stipple dotting. It's the chromolithography that gives them much of their wonderful quality. In the next year, 1899, Publishers Weekly, in its lengthy notices of books for the Christmas market, showed this end paper drawing on the left as the front end paper for John Tabb's Child Verse, published by Small Maynard and Company Boston, a little boy waking up in his room and seeing his toy horse. On the back end paper at the right, the same well-bred child says his evening prayers. The end papers are printed in one color, a dark olive green. When you see work this fine, it's often the production of a famous designer, and the end papers were done by Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue, the ecclesiastical architect who did, in addition, so many outstanding and beautifully structured book covers and decorations. Here we see real moods created on end papers. An American version of Kingsley's Water Babies in watercolor wash and a silhouette in a very different mood from the sequel, Helen's Babies. I think anyone who is familiar with the English children's author, Beatrice Potter, is familiar with the end paper on the left. Her popular little books, as they are reprinted today by Frederick Warren, her original publisher, still carry this end paper. It first appeared in 1903 in The Tale of Squirrel Nutkin. We read in her biography that she was delighted with her publisher's suggestion for making it and designed this so that it could be used in subsequent stories. Each character holds it appro its appropriate book. The animals are joined by a delicate foliage, but even more by the psychological sidelong glances they give each other. If you know the stories, you can relish how the squirrel's impudent look is checked by Old Brown the Owl's warning glance. Beatrice Potter was pleased with these, so was her publisher and the reading public. 
She went on to make individual papers for two of her books, Ginger and Pickles and The Tale of Samuel Whiskers. But in 1912, close to the end of her great period of children's stories, she made another generalized end paper, the one on the right. And to appreciate her reaction to it, <clears throat> you have to know something about her character. Her little animals are dear and appealing, but she herself was a shrewd, prickly, North Country personality. Familiar readers may enjoy seeing Jemima Puddle Duck hurry up beside Peter Rabbit and his cousin Benjamin while Tom Kitten stands next to the Flopsy Bunnies. But to Beatrice Potter, now that they were printed in color, they looked like an advertisement, the very idea of which she abhorred. I have a most intense dislike to advertisement, and I have got on quite well enough without it. She wrote to her publisher, Warren, I think the end papers spoil the book. To my candid thinking, they are perfectly horrid, too big, and rather commonplace. They are just like the field advertisements along the railway lines. It never struck me when I was doing them. I am ashamed of them. To me, this is one of the three or four most successful end papers ever made for an individual book. This is Johnny Crow's Garden by L. Leslie Brook, another one of Frederick Warren's author illustrators for children. And it was published in 1903, the same year Beatrice Potter did her first end paper. This paper captures the surprise and polite good humor of the garden where Johnny Crow played the part of the tactful host under all sorts of circumstances, such as when the bear wore slumberwear and even the llamas put on pajamas. There were two succeeding Johnny Crow books, each with their own end papers in line, not wash drawings like this, but they are much more ordinary than this brilliantly daring composition. I show here on this Dodd-Mead book of 1891 how at last American trade publishers began to fit the end paper to the book. This is Under the Trees by Hamilton Wright Maybe with cover and book decorations by Charles Lewis Hinton, a designer who also worked in book plates. The cover is done in quite a finished style. Then the swirling leaves on the end paper printed in light green expand the ideas aroused by the trees and the title. With Under the Trees, we complete the specifically designed end papers. Oh, I did the wrong thing. Thank you. And we'll look at, briefly at the final flowering of the stock end papers into the Art Nouveau and Art Deco modes. Art Nouveau did not take root in England and America, but its influence was felt. And the stock end paper on the right, with its beautiful, subtle arrangement of what is perhaps dandelion seeds printed in gray, is a notable American example used in the early 1890s. On the left, a gold and white design, probably designed by Sarah Wyman Whitman, chief cover designer for Houghton Mifflin's books, in the late 1880s and 90s, it seems to be based on Rossetti's end paper with the background of little curls.
It's in European trade books, particularly in Czechoslovakia, Germany, and the Scandinavian countries that we find from the 90s to 1905, both on covers and end papers, the rich, sophisticated flowering of Art Nouveau that was only a timid influence in England and America. European books of this period are a treasure trove of end papers, pattern after pattern, good in design, good in color, good in printing. It's difficult to find a poor one. They set such a high standard. Sets of German and Danish authors are found with such end papers in them. The languid, sinuous line, the abstracted but recognizable flower shapes, became flatter and more simplified, more charged with energy. And within a very short space of time, took on the curving geometric forms of what was called jazz modern, beginning as early as 1910 and going into the 1930s. We know this period today as Art Deco. <laughs> Closing out the Art Deco work, this is the cover on the right and the end paper of a book from Finland on the subject of giants and folk tales published in Helsinki 1908. This is a perfect example of the role of the end paper at the turn of the century when professional design had entered the book arts. Here the end paper supports and extends the idea presented on the cover. It's truly unified with the cover in great contrast to the conflictful situation we saw on the 1880s colonial days where the cover of Indians and sailing ships was followed by birds and flowers on the end paper. We'll look once more at the chart of printed end papers and see how what we've been looking at fits in. Above the dateline is England and America. On the left are the few neat symmetrical patterns and plaids of the 1840s and 50s, succeeded by a blank period as far as printed end papers go, but a heavy use of the dull finish surface papers. Then on the right in the 1880s and 90s came a sudden burst of flowered end papers in many patterns used in great quantity, not shown on the chart but paralleling the flowered end papers and going on through the turn of the century was a lot of activity in specially designed end papers for individual books. Then going below the dateline, just as printed stock end papers were fading away in America and England, they flowered in abundance in European books in the Art Nouveau and Art Deco styles. To finish up, we'll move into contemporary times and look at the latest phase in the role of the end paper. I want to show you some exciting end papers I've found in Russian books. These are from 20th century novels printed in Russia. 
They date from the 1930s into the late 1970s. This one is 1970, and its yellow-green pattern is really an updating and posterization of the scraggly vines of the 1880s end papers. Here again, single elements from nature, pine branches, orange-colored apples, by simplification and posterization, put into a stylish modern idiom. Many of them draw on their own folk art traditions. <clears throat> the earlier Art Nouveau and Art Deco styles were universal styles, with Parisian work hardly distinguishable from that of Copenhagen. But in the social climate of the 1950s into the 1970s, it became popular for each country to showcase its own art and traditions. The celebration of peasant art enters into end papers. This beautiful design in mustard and gray resembles peasant weaving. End papers take earlier patterns and enlarge and vitalize them, make them dance, show them on a bold scale. These are 1950s designs. Such peasant work is totally outside the scope of American and English end papers. We don't have such a tradition to draw on. On the left, a repeat pattern made very forceful through its size and color. On the right, one single <coughs> element of peasant design has been selected and highlighted next to a blue panel. This is another localized peasant style printed in 1974 in green on a pale blue paper. A vigorous leafy vine at a good sized scale interspersed with birds and insects. The role of these decorative end papers is to bring up to date and sell the heritage and traditions of the country through the book arts, sustain local pride in its own unique qualities. They are an assertion of national esteem. And finally, Russian end papers of the late 1970s used in a very expressive way to carry political ideological messages. These end papers occur in novels and memoirs of intellectual leaders. In beige and maroon on the left, the bird of promise flies into the future, bypassing the actual shortages and dreariness of its own day. On the right, a handsome yellow and orange posterized end paper shows a glorification of work, the construction workers presented as heroes of socialist labor. This blue end paper from a novel about the Second World War published in 1975 extols the Red Army in its protective role. 
the friezes display a unity of purpose between the army and the people. Russian peasants of all ages salute the soldiers, perhaps their own villagers, but presented as stark, heroic figures, riding out to fight for them to protect the fatherland. Not all of them may return. The army is clearly shown as a benefit to the people. And on front and back end papers, bayonets aggressively positioned but portrayed in a very tender drawing style, printed in soft browns and blues in negative and positive form, carry the same message. Our arms are good. As they have done, they will protect us. Here, the subject is revolution itself. Drawn in scratchboard, printed in red and black, the end paper takes on the qualities of a brilliant, impressive poster. It celebrates and glorifies the Russian Revolution, according to the perceptions and national outlook of the late 1970s. It will be interesting to see if Gorbachev and the glasnost era of today produce end papers of a different feeling. To sum up, a book will hold together as well with a plain end paper as a printed one. A printed end paper is always an extra optional touch. It's not a necessity. Where a book's cover really must carry it, convey its own title and a book's text must convey the book's message, end papers are free of obligation. With less pressure on them, with less attention focused on them, they can become, when they are printed, more interesting than any other part of the book as unconscious carriers of culture. Here are two extremes of the role of the printed end paper. An 1850s pattern that could be a parlor chintz invites us to a cozy world. The 1970s poster exhorts us not to forget the accomplishments of the Russian Revolution. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sue. Come and meet the speaker at a reception in room 523 and stop off in room 511 on the way to have a look at the RBS Notion Shop.